Thank you, Jake and Emily. Appreciate your ministry and music. Wonderful singing this morning. John chapter number 10. John chapter number 10. We have been looking at this chapter, and we have last week looked at Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He makes the statement, I am the good shepherd. He also makes the I am statement in this chapter, I am the door. So last week, we spent some time looking at the contrast between the good shepherd, the true shepherd, and false shepherds. And this is all with the background of the healing of the man who was born blind. That was the event that led to this discourse, that led to this sermon. And Jesus is obviously calling out the false shepherds of Israel, those religious leaders, those false teachers who were teaching a works-based salvation instead of a faith in the Messiah, Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. They were teaching a works-based salvation based on their commandments of men that they had heaped upon the law of God, and specifically they were using the Sabbath as their point of contention with Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus was broadening his teaching and exposing them for their hypocrisy, for their false teaching, and showing the contrast. And it was very pointed, the difference between the false shepherd and the good shepherd, the true shepherd. And he makes it very clear in John chapter number 10, in verse number 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Down in verse number 12, they are referred to, the false shepherds are, as hirelings. They preach a false gospel. They teach a salvation by works. They don't really care for the sheep. They fleece the sheep. They take advantage of them. They're not willing to give their life. As a matter of fact, the sheep are exploited for money and popularity. They're exploited for what they can do to make the false shepherd, the hireling, look good and become rich and famous, or whatever the case may be. Oftentimes the false shepherds lead the sheep into a cultic type of following, a cultic type of group, and then they're led to a destruction. We've seen the Jim Joneses of the world and some of the other cults some of which are still in existence. I remember the David Koresh incident back in, I think, the 90s. And the cultic personality that led those people in his false teaching and his immorality. And there was death and destruction and violence and fire. And it made the news and the headlines. There are examples all throughout human history. There are cults today that continue to teach a false doctrine that have people believing lies. And Christ is contrasting himself with the false teachers who are very religious, who look really good on the outside, but we also read in other gospel accounts that they are whited sepulchers full of dead man's bones. Driving over here on Schuyler, we take Schuyler to church uh, on, a, on a regular basis, and we pass through a cemetery on both sides of the road. And there are some very ornate gravestones and monuments and memorials. Some of them are very beautiful. But what's underneath? Dead man's bones. 
there's going to be a, a funeral very soon for uh, the Queen of, of England. And I've heard a little bit about the casket and the ornate uh, casket and the uh, ornate processions, if you've watched any of it, the pomp and circumstance is just unbelievable. But what's inside that beautiful casket? What's inside that beautiful casket is just dead woman's bones. It's, it's not a pretty picture when we think about it. We can gloss over and make the wickedness and make the sin and make the false teaching look very appealing and very good on the outside, but it can be full of spiritual corruption and destruction. And there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that's the contrast. Jesus is concerned for the souls of the false teachers and those who are following him. And we've seen groups get saved already in John 8 and in John 7. And there is even among the religious leaders, there's a growing division and controversy. We'll see it again in John 10. There are people who are on the fence, so to speak. They are at the crossroads. Will they trust Christ as the Messiah, the, the, the Savior, and reject the works and the false teaching of the religious leaders? Or will they continue on the road to destruction, the wide path, and follow the religious leaders? Follow the false shepherds, the hirelings, the thieves, the robbers? So in this contrast, we see once again that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. One of the primary points of contrast is that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So we see sacrifice. Verse 14, the good shepherd knows his sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known and am known of mine. It is an assurance, it is a security to the believer that the good shepherd, that God knows us. If we are truly born again, having repented of our sin, placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a child of God, isn't it an assurance to know that He knows us? I tell you what, I've been lost only a few times in my life uh, as a little kid. One time in particular, we were in a big crowd and I got away from my mom's hand and got lost and I went into... I don't know how old I was, but I went into a panic because I looked up and that woman that was standing there was not my mom. And I was in panic looking around and then sure enough, my mom was looking for me and what an assurance that was that my mom was looking for me and she knew who I was and she knew me by name and she could identify me in that crowd and she went over and she grabbed my hand and she tugged on my arm and was like, where did you go? How did you let go of my hand? Stay close to me. I will, mom, I will, mom. <laughs> it's an assurance. It's, it's a, a confidence that we have as believers that we are a child of God and he knows us. There's no other religion that has that. No other religion has that kind of relationship, has that kind of assurance. Praise God, the good shepherd knows his sheep. Also, the good shepherd knows the father, verse 15. As the father knoweth me, even so know I the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We see again the sacrifice. He knows the father, and he lays down his life for the sheep. So we see that identification with the father. The father knoweth me. The Jews, the religious leaders, they knew very clearly what Jesus was saying. They knew he was identifying himself as God. They recognized that. And Jesus was again demonstrating his authority. And again, he's speaking a truth that either makes him a liar, a lunatic, 
or Lord that makes him truly the Son of God. The Father knoweth me. He is saying that God, the Father, the one true and living God, Jehovah God, Yahweh, knows me. He's identifying himself with God in an experiential relationship, in a relationship that is unique within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And we believe in the Trinity. We believe the Bible teaches the Trinity. I can't completely, fully, with my little pea brain, understand all of the aspects of the Trinity. And an egg with a yolk and the white and the shell doesn't really do justice in illustrating the Trinity. And there's other illustrations that people have used to try to explain it. The point is we accept it by faith because the Bible teaches it and Jesus is identifying himself as God. We see the good shepherd knows his sheep, he knows the father, and he gives his life. He gives his life for the sheep. We've already touched on that a little bit and it's repeated there in verse 15. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So the good shepherd will also bring more sheep into the fold. There are others that he is bringing. His work is not done. He's not saying, I have this fold of sheep and it's exclusive and there's nobody else. No, he's continuing to reach more. The idea is that the gospel is going forth and there's more people who need to be saved, including in that very midst and possibly even including in our very midst right now, today, who need to be saved. And Jesus is saying, my work is not done, there are more. And then we could even go to the soteriological aspects of the Gentiles being included in speaking to the fact that the gospel would go forth from the apostles and specifically the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We talked about it in Sunday school, how Peter even had to come to that realization when he was called to go to witness to Cornelius that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well and for the Samaritans as Philip went and preached to the Samaritan as Jesus had already done himself in ministering to the Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking about others coming into the fold who will come by the door, come by the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life himself, Jesus Christ. There's the gospel that is proclaimed even in verse number 16, that there's more to be saved and to enter the sheepfold, but they must come by the door. They must come by the good shepherd. Verses 17 and 18, again, we see Christ repeating that he voluntarily gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life. He willingly gives his life. Man did not have the power to crucify Christ. He willingly laid down his life. God in his providence allowed man to exercise his sinful will in murdering Christ. But Jesus would remind even Peter the night of the crucifixion that he could call 10,000 angels to set him free in Matthew 26 and verse 53. And yet he loved us. And he willingly, voluntarily, out of love, out of a desire to see us saved, to see us forgiven, to spend an eternity with us, clothed in his righteousness, he laid down his life for us. The good shepherd sacrifices, willingly lays down his life. What did David do as a shepherd, a human shepherd, illustrating to some degree the good shepherd of Jesus Christ, 
What did David do? He took on a bear. He took on a lion with his bare hands as a shepherd and slew those two animals, those two beasts. He illustrated in a human sense, not obviously to the, the, the degree that Christ did, but what did David do? He illustrated as a shepherd a willingness to lay down his life, to give his life for the sheep. Again, we see false shepherds, we see false teachers frequently. And it's about them, it's about their money, and it's about their wealth, and it's about their popularity. It's about them. And they exploit the sheep, they fleece the sheep. And there's no sacrifice. You sacrifice for them. Your sacrifice is a demonstration of your faith and your godliness and my popularity, my wealth, my lifting up demonstrates the fact that you are people of faith. It's that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's a false teaching. And then for a false teacher to get up and use the word faith teaching that you can speak your existence, your destiny into existence by your words. Dangerous stuff. We see the good shepherd willingly laying down his life in the providence of God, in God's time, in God's perfect plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One commentator said it this way, Jesus was not a helpless pawn on history's chessboard. This was part of God's redemption plan. And Christ willingly gave his life voluntarily as a sacrifice for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. Our sin was laid upon him. But we must accept that free gift of salvation. We must repent of our sins. We must put our faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection to receive that gift of salvation, to enter into the sheepfold by the door, according to the good shepherd, following him and him alone for salvation. We also see in verses 17 that the good shepherd in giving his life for the sheep, he was certain, he was certain of the father's love and his obedience to the father's command. Verse 17, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Speaking, of course, of the resurrection. Verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. So he has... In a, in, a, in a sense, he's warning the religious leaders. You really have no power over me. I will li willingly give my life in God's perfect time and plan. I will lay down my life. We see the sacrifice. We see the love. We see the commitment to God and obedience to God's commands. This is a sacrifice of the Son of God for us. That, that's a hard truth sometimes to completely fathom, to completely wrap our minds around. I, I say it all the time. We won't stop in a bad part of town to buy a gallon of milk. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to deal with sin-cursed people, sinners like us. Think about all the conflicts we have in our relationships. Think about all the difficulties Think about all the hurt. Think about how hard it is to forgive. Think about how hard it is to, in a loving, kind, 
patient way to tolerate others and the differences. I'm not talking about tolerating and condoning sin and immoral choices and, 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 and clear wrong and evil. But we still love the person. We still desire their soul to receive Christ. God's called us together as a church family. We're here uniquely called by God to this local assembly. And we struggle sometimes to get along with each other. Yet God has clearly put us here. And we hear all kinds of conflicts in Christianity today. And we hear about church splits. And I've said it before that I've talked to a pastor who, standing in the church parking lot, he said, that church down the street split from this church. And that church you passed on the way back up the other side, that was a split from that church. How sad. It's sad that there's that kind of conflict among God's people. But we see that Christ willingly, lovingly, gave up the glories of heaven, perfect harmony with the Trinity, to deal with people like you and me. And I don't know about you, but I'm not very easy to get along with sometimes. Just ask my wife and my kids. And I say that to my shame. I have to repent and get right and have to deal with my own faults and failures. And there are times I go to bed at night and asking and begging for forgiveness because it just wasn't a good day. I'm so sick and tired of my flesh. How it got in the way again. Yet God still loved us. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us while we were enemies of God. Here is Christ taking all this time with these religious leaders who hated him who despised him, who had literally picked up stones at one point to throw at him. And he went right back into the temple and he continued to preach, continued to declare the truth. And that's where we're at in our culture. We never thought it would come to the United States of America. But we're there. Where the stones are being picked up to throw at us. But we have Christ we sang hymns today purposely about Christ being our shelter in the time of storm, our firm foundation, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, all because that's who we must continue to look to. Christ was appealing to them to be saved. I give my life. He's saying to people who hated him, I am giving my life for you if you'll just repent and receive me. And the atonement can be applied to your account. There are others who would be saved. We saw it in John 7, saw it in John 8. We'll see it again in John 10. There's an evangelistic outreach as Jesus proclaims this truth about the good shepherd, about being the door. So we see the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We see sacrifice. And then verses 19 through 21 is a little bit of a parenthesis. There was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath the devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Here's this controversy. Here's these among the Pharisees, the religious leaders. There's conflict. Oh, you believe in him? Oh, you can't believe in him. And there's accusations about him having a demon. There's this really reprobate group who's now beginning to refer to Christ as being demon-possessed, as doing the works of Satan. They're really turning into that state of a reprobate mind that Romans 1 describes. Then there are some who are, are leaning, you know, maybe toward Jesus being the true Messiah, and we should believe in him. 
And we don't know where Joseph of Arimathea and where Nicodemus are, are at in all this. Maybe they're involved in that. But there's a division. And again, it's a reminder, this is what, this is what Christ does. It, it's, it, we, we have a loving God. God is love. But there is a choice to make concerning Jesus Christ. Everybody has to come to a point of decision regarding Jesus Christ. For some, he's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, he's foolishness. To the Jews, a stumbling block. But to those who are saved, he is the power of God. And we see that here again in this passage. And we see that crossroads. We see that point of decision. And there's this division among the, the Pharisees. And that brings us to verses 22 through 25. We've seen that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We've seen sacrifice. And then we see the division among the religious leaders. Division. But then we see that Christ's works, Christ's works bear witness to his deity. So we see deity or we see divinity. So, once again, our faith is revealed. The character of God is revealed Jesus Christ is God. So there are certain attributes, certain actions, certain words, certain behaviors that are going to come out of who he is as God. What would we expect God to do? If God became a man, which he did, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, 100% God, 100% man. If God became a man, what would we expect God to do? The works of Jesus Christ. This is what God would do. Jesus Christ is God, so these are the works we can expect. And that's, in a sense, what Jesus is just plainly saying in verses 22 through 25. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He's dealt with this before. He's proclaimed his works, his works of deity. And again, they're questioning him with, a spirit of doubt, looking for an accusation. Their response to his answer, sadly, it, it seems to reflect that they had a desire not to believe in Christ, but to find an accusation, to find another reason to accuse him of blasphemy. Christ had made it very plain who he was. The works that he was doing were the works of God. But once again, they, 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 they come, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, you know, some people can get up and they can say a lot of things. And we know how it is. It, it happens in politics. It happens in our homes sometimes, in our workplaces. People say all the right things. They make grandiose statements, especially in politics. I mean, some of the politicians, they're going to save the world. Just vote for them, right? Just give them all your money. They're going to save the world. They're going to bring peace, peace and prosperity. And, and, and they're going to solve everything from cancer to climate change to whatever. Just vote for them. Give them all your money. And they're going to wave their magic wand, I guess, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Whatever hunky-dory is. 
right? They make all these promises, make all these grandiose statements, make all these superlatives, and they're full of baloney. Their promises aren't kept. They can't possibly even do anything that they promise, that they say they can do. As a matter of fact, they do the opposite many times. And they're full of corruption and iniquity and wickedness and in rebellion against God. So when Jesus makes these bold claims, are they just words? Are they just empty words? Are they just grandiose statements, superlatives? Or are they truth? And if they are truth, they would be backed up with the works of God. And what does Jesus do? He performs the works of God. He says, okay, if you don't want to believe me for my words, then for my works. Ooh, that really hits home. Because they couldn't deny. They couldn't deny that the works that Jesus was doing were the very works of God. Exactly what the Old Testament had prophesied. Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies. He was doing the very works that God said the Messiah would do. The very works that God would do were he to come in the incarnation as a man, as the God-man. That's the works that Jesus is doing. And he's saying believe. His works backed up his claims. They validated his message. They pointed to the truth concerning himself. So that brings us to the next point. Christ's disciples know and follow him. This has to do with validity or verification or veracity, if you want to use that word. Christ's sheep know his voice. So bring, bring us, we, we, we come down to verse 26. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Christ's sheep know his voice. Jesus had referred to himself not that long ago as the door, as the good shepherd. Those unbelieving religious leaders, those unbelieving people in that midst, some of whom, many of whom were antagonistic toward Jesus, they were not his sheep. They did not recognize his voice. If they would repent of their sins, if they would put their faith and trust in Christ, if they would believe in him, then they would be his sheep and they would recognize his voice. But they refused to enter the sheepfold by the door. They refused to come by the way of the good shepherd. They were thieves, they were robbers, and they were hirelings. They couldn't discern, they couldn't understand, they couldn't receive the things of God because they refused the voice of the good shepherd because they were not his sheep. Again, there's a contrast. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So let's go a step further. Following Christ, following his voice, knowing his voice, and following the Good Shepherd verifies 
our salvation, validates our salvation. Now, I know we have to put on our thinking caps. On a Sunday morning, and I used to tell students that all the time, maybe you had a teacher. I think that's one of those phrases that's gone through the annals of time, our thinking caps. We've got to put on our thinking caps a little bit this morning. If we are a child of God, truly a child of God, just like I was lost in that crowd that day, and I saw and I heard my mom's voice, and I recognized her, and I recognized her voice, and she came to me, and I went to her. What is a distinction of a believer? He's hearing the voice of God in following him. So what does that say when a believer is trying to walk that fence and listen to the voice of the world and the voice of God at the same time? They live in absolute torture and turmoil. And their salt has lost its savor. And their light is clouded up and fogged over. Because they are not in tune to the voice of the Good Shepherd. But the believer, the true, genuine believer, responds to the voice of the Good Shepherd. So an unsaved person ultimately reveals who they are because they do not ultimately, truly persevere, endure, and follow the Savior fully and completely to the end. At some point along the way, the evidences of their lack of salvation are revealed because they're not hearing the voice of the shepherd. Now, I don't want to create confusion. We all struggle with the carnal Christian. 1 Corinthians 3 deals with the carnal Christian. It's a hard passage sometimes because there's those people who they look a certain degree like a Christian, but then their life seems to indicate something else. The point is that the true child of God knows the good shepherd's voice and follows him. We know in Ephesians 2 and verse number 10 that we are created in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves as the gift of works. Is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. After salvation, our good works do what? They show that we are his workmanship created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So as we're hearing the voice of the shepherd and we have been saved and we continue to hear the voice of the good shepherd, our life reveals that we are his sheep and we look like the sheep of the good shepherd. We look more and more like him and less and less like the wolves and the coyotes and the false sheep, the fake sheep. And it's because we are following the voice of the shepherd. We're following the voice of the shepherd. We are living in obedience to God's word. We're applying God's word. Christ's likeness is manifesting itself in our lives. Galatians 5 and verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. A true sheep following the true shepherd, the good shepherd, demonstrates the qualities, the characteristics of the good shepherd. There's a Christ-like attitude. There's humility. 
There's Christ-like actions. There's character. There's the fruit of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, temperance, faithfulness. There's the virtues of 2 Peter 1. Adding to our faith, virtue, and the virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, temperance. And the temperance, godliness, and brotherly kindness. Our lives demonstrate the broken and the contrite spirit that we talked about in Psalm 51 on Wednesday night. There's no room for pride and carnality and biting and devouring one another. James is very clear if you bite and devour one another, you're carnal. Too many sheep today have dirty wool soaked down by the dirty rivers and streams that were not part of the still waters that the Good Shepherd leads his sheep to. Why does the Good Shepherd lead sheep to still waters? Because sheep get in running water and they fall in and their wool gets wet and they can't get out. That's why we have to be in tune to the voice of the Good Shepherd all the time and we reveal whether we are a true sheep of the true shepherd ultimately by the evidence of our lives and Jesus is making it a very clear contrast he's reaching out in evangelism to the unsaved while he's dealing with the false teachers in John chapter number 10 and then as we come to a close here we can't go through this passage without dealing with the fact that Christ's sheep are eternally secure. We see security. Christ's sheep are eternally secure. Once you enter the sheepfold by the door, by the good shepherd, you cannot be lost again. You have been given eternal life and no one can take you from the Father. How can a person get unsaved? How can a person get unborn? A person who is truly saved is always saved. We read here that I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. How can we, if truly saved, how can we undo justification, undo propitiation, undo the sanctification of the, of the Spirit of God when we get saved? I know there's a progressive sanctification. I'm not talking about the positional sanctification. How do we undo all that? How do we then, how do we take the hand of God and pry his fingers off of us? Impossible. If we're truly born again, we're always born again. We're once saved, always saved. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We see it very clearly here. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now notice, you must first be a genuine sheep before you have these privileges. There are some people who have us fooled. As a matter of fact, at the judgment seat, at the great white throne judgment, there will be some who will say what? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many marvelous works. And what will Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. So it's a reminder. Are we a true sheep? Does our life give evidence? And if we are truly born again, then once saved, always saved. No man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. So sometimes believers get doubts. I had doubts when I was in junior high. I know I got saved when I was uh, a child, six, seven years old. 
And I know that there were doubts in junior high, and I got those settled. There's a difference between doubts of a believer who's truly saved, truly born again, because sin will cause doubts. And when we get out of sorts with the Lord, there can be doubts that come in, and sin can cause that kind of doubt. But there has to be those evidences. Is my faith and my trust truly in Christ and his finished work on the cross? There are some who go through a period of doubt and they realize they never truly repented. They never truly trusted Christ as their Savior. They just put on the, the front. They went through the motions. It's a dangerous place to be. We have to discern when there's doubts. But we come back to the promise that no man shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. It's impossible. Once we are in the Father's hand, once we are in the sheepfold, once we are truly born again, we cannot get unborn. We can't undo what only God could do. We are saved and always saved. So the appeal again this morning is, be sure. Be sure that you know, that you know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if you know, then how are you living? What does our wool look like as sheep? Is it dirty? Is it full of the briars and the pests? Are we running down by the running water and the muck and the mire of the world? Or are we keeping our wool clean and pure and right before God so that we can be the best sheep in God's pastures for His passage in John 10 that speaks to the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the voice of the Christ in saving faith today and Enter into the sheepfold by the door and there be eternally secure, kept in the Father's hand. Lord, for those of us as believers, assured of our salvation, Lord, may we not be lifted up in pride or exalt ourselves above, but Lord, help us to see as sinners saved by grace. And Lord, do your work in our hearts, even as believers. Lord, maybe we're sheep with some dirty wool and we've got some pests and we've been running around and dirty pastures and running water and the muck and the mire of the world. Lord, help us to get those things right, get those fixed, that we'll be in a right relationship with you and enter into the sheepfold with abundant life and live that out in our daily lives for your glory and effective servants for you. Lord, I pray that you do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing song.